This episode contains strong themes that some listeners may find distressing. The historical events in this show touch on the subjects of chronic illness, death, suicide, homophobia, sexual acts, drug use, and some explicit language. The 1980s were important and trying times for Aotearoa. Many look back to this time for the fashion and the music, but it was also a period of bold protest and activism, political reform, economic disasters, and more. You may have learned about some of these events in school. The Springboks Tour, the Rainbow Warrior, Māori Language Act of 1987, all important parts of our history that people should know and reflect on. In this series, you'll learn something that isn't taught in schools, but it should be. A story that should sit alongside all of our most famous events in history, involving a group of brave people that Aotearoa should be immensely proud of. Perhaps it's a testament to how well they did that most don't know their names, but it's time to change that. This is Our Forgotten Epidemic, a six-part story about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS, and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. I'm your host, Dr Jason Myers, and I've been honoured to have been a part of the HIV response in Aotearoa for nearly two decades. This is part two. Who was Bruce Burnett? Before you hear the rest of the story, I want to take some time to remember Bruce Burnett. When we first started working on this series, we couldn't find many recordings of Bruce or those close to him. But after a little detective work, and with thanks to the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand and Pride NZ, in this episode, you're going to hear about Bruce through the voices of Robin Mihaide, Bruce's older sister, Keith Robinson, Bruce's former partner, and through archival audio, Bruce Burnett himself, speaking at a lecture he gave at the nightclub Alfie's in Auckland, one of the many stops on his AIDS roadshow around Aotearoa. Our story starts on the 16th of November 1954 in the Waitakere suburb of Avondale when Bruce Burnett was born. Um, he was a big baby actually, he was nearly 10 pound born, so he looked almost three months, so he's a bonny baby. That's Bruce's sister, Robin Mihaere. Oh, we had a really good childhood. We were close, and he was a lovely brother. He had this lovely blonde, curly hair, and everyone used to comment on that. And he was just a lovely child. Bruce and his sister Robin had a stable, happy home life growing up. Their parents each worked in creative trades. From their home in Auckland, the Burnett family would go on frequent holidays, travelling up north to visit friends in Lee for weekends, and down south to stay on their cousin's farm in Bulls for the summer. Robin remembers that from a young age, Bruce was always forward-thinking and entrepreneurial. As a teenager, he set his mind on going to university to study architecture. In order to pay for his tuition, while he was still at school, he started his own business. He had this basket-making business, which was all the rage in those days, cane, baskets that you made. And I used to help him and then he'd sell them off at the markets to get some money for university. Some way into his degree, Bruce made the decision to ditch architecture and instead become a chef. But rather than simply taking an apprenticeship in one of Auckland's hotels or restaurants, he decided to go abroad. 
After a couple of years in the kitchens of Europe, Bruce returned to New Zealand, where he started multiple cafes and restaurants. Aotearoa, in the midst of a foodie revolution, was ready for someone with Bruce's culinary chops. He was a very, very good pastry chef. His food was just amazing. He made these wonderful quiches and volivants and all the French pastries. And at that time, there wasn't very many in New Zealand at all. But Bruce, as successful as he had been in Auckland, soon found himself in search of another adventure. Like so many other gay men over the years, he heeded the siren song of what is sometimes referred to as the gay capital of the world, San Francisco, USA. The year was 1982. Meanwhile, the New Zealand Bruce had left was rapidly changing. This week, what's on for gay men and lesbians? Motivated in part by Māori lesbian activists Nahuya Tawe Kotuku and fueled by the 1969 Stonewall riots, Aotearoa's gay rights movement had been picking up steam since the early 1970s. Gay liberation groups began popping up in all the major centres. Gay people were coming out in droves. And, as well as advocating for social, political and law reforms, they were having fun. A black and white party at Don't Tell Mummers. Saturday the 21st of July is a party at Staircase with the outrageous Troll Dolls. And on Sunday the 22nd of July, there's a grand finale at Alfie's with the fabulous bloomers, Don't Tell Mummers, Staircase, Alfie's, The Out Bookshop and other gay venues. Come along for a great time and celebrate with Team Auckland. It was to this scene that another young gay man, Keith Robinson, returned home. He, too, had grown up in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, in the suburb of Mount Roskill. He also had left Auckland in his early 20s, moving across the Tasman to Australia, where he had lived and worked all over the country. And in 1983, returning to Tamaki, Keith threw himself into the nightlife. It was actually really good. Most everybody went to the Staircase or Alfie's. Those were the two places for if you wanted to catch up with friends and see a show, you'd go to Mojo's or something like that. The people, gay men went to Alfie's, or uh, the younger ones went to Alfie's, and Staircase, which was down on Fort Street, the first Staircase. And, and the Alex pub was there up on Fort Street. So it was, it was a good thing. A talented graphic designer, Keith quickly found work. Living with his parents in Mount Roskill, he would get the bus into Mount Eden, where he was the art director of a newspaper, The City News. He reconnected with old friends and made new ones and had an engaging, active social life. But still, Keith would occasionally get lonely. He wondered sometimes when he might meet someone who could match his wild energy and enthusiasm for life. Pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-smartphones, travel was a very different thing. Some listeners will remember the scribbled postcards and blue airmail letters, arranging to meet friends in a foreign city, near a fountain at a specific hour, months in advance, the rushed phone call with only enough time to say, I'm well, I love you, before your coins ran out. So it's understandable that Bruce would only keep sporadic contact with his sister Robin during the time he was away. In one phone call, Bruce told Robin that he had started working as a counsellor for the volunteer organisation, The Shanti Project, 
You heard about the Shanti Project in the last episode. When Bruce started there, they'd already begun working with people terminally ill from AIDS. But Bruce didn't mention any of this to Robin during the brief times they would speak. All she knew was that he was caring for ill people, which sounded a lot like the brother she loved and respected. Abruptly, in 1983, Bruce decided to return to Aotearoa. He contacted Robin out of the blue and said he'd be home very soon, and asked if he could stay with her and her husband Don. He didn't explain why. Robin, who had assumed that he would return sometime, didn't really question it. Of course, he was always welcome to stay with them, she told him. Robin and Don lived in Massey, Auckland, in a home that had been designed by Bruce and Robin's father, who had also helped build it. It was there, years earlier, that a 24-year-old Bruce had come out to them as gay. So, it was a very familiar environment that Bruce came home to, and one that he must have felt comfortable to be himself in. Robin, of course, was excited to have her brother back. They'd always been close, and she had missed him while he was away. But... When Bruce arrived, he was different. He didn't seem well. Not terribly unwell, just not his usual vital self. I think he had swollen glands and he was a bit tired and that sort of thing. He didn't actually look too bad at that stage, I can remember. From their dining room, large windows overlooked the white matar. It was here that Bruce, Robin and Don sat together at the wooden table on dusky pink chairs facing the harbour bridge. They talked for hours as cups of tea cooled in front of them and the sun dipped below the horizon. Something was making Bruce agitated. He kept talking about this thing that was happening overseas that Robin had never heard about. People are going to die and it's going to be tragedy. I have to get out and let people know. We thought, what are they talking about? But Bruce was adamant. It was going to be a a pandemic and people were going to die from it and people needed to know and he had to get the word out. It's almost unimaginable to consider what Robin must have felt sitting in her familiar living room in Waitakere with her baby brother urgently telling her that he'd been helping people with a fatal contagious disease. Robin had heard nothing of this in the New Zealand media. Bruce explained that even in the US, where it was already killing thousands of people, the government had so far refused to act upon it, or even acknowledge that it existed. Although Robin was still struggling to process what he had already told her, this wasn't the worst of Bruce's news. Yeah, we were at home, sitting at the kitchen table, and he said that he thought he might have caught a mild version of it at the time. He's telling us all about it, and, and, my, and my husband. He said, oh, we'll have to have separate knives and forks. We can't, no touching, you know. He just laughed. He said, he said, no, you can't catch it like that. We now know that it isn't possible to acquire HIV from sharing cutlery. But in the context of how little was known then, it's understandable that Don had hesitations. Robin, however, trusted her brother completely. She was determined to support Bruce in whatever ways she could. I believe what he was doing was right, and so we supported him.
It was around this time that Dr. Rod Ellis Pegler received that phone call, the one which informed him about the man with AIDS who needed to get home to Taranaki. And he rang me and said, look, we've got this guy who's a New Zealander. He's got this new illness. He wants to go home. The man was Denny. He had lived in London and San Francisco before moving to Sydney and was just 29 years old when he returned home to Taranaki to be looked after by his sister Pat. After his death in March 1984, Denny's sister Pat was interviewed. She said that the brave Denny used to tell her while sick, it's just another experience. But then, when he knew he was going to die, he said, this is it Trish. She replied, yeah, I think so boy. She also spoke about the intense stigma surrounding his death from AIDS. We had him buried before the papers were told about it, she told the nation. His full name wasn't even put in the paper. A lot of people who had known Denny as a kid still don't know he died. After all these years, Denny's last name is still not widely known. Even with all this intense media speculation, the majority of New Zealanders didn't really know what AIDS was, and this ignorance resulted in extreme discrimination. Gay people were losing their jobs, their friends, their whānau, and even their homes at the mere suspicion someone might be living with AIDS. For anyone actually in this position, it would take a tremendous amount of bravery to even think of sharing their story to such a misinformed country at this time. While Rod and the Ministry of Health were busy dealing with the cases that had begun to arrive in New Zealand, Bruce Burnett had been thinking about what he could do to help. Having seen firsthand the devastation that was happening in America, he was determined to do everything he could to stop the same thing being repeated here. I think he just wanted to help people. And then, of course, when AIDS came here, he just wanted to make sure everyone knew how to say to say. Bruce and the team of volunteers around him were united by a single cause. They called themselves the AIDS Support Network, and they immediately set to work educating and enlisting others. Realising they needed to reach as many gay men as possible, as quickly as possible, they began arranging workshops, lectures and meetings around the country. And thankfully, people started to take notice. It was through one of these meetings that Keith Robinson, now recently returned friend from Australia, first heard about Bruce. I heard from one of my friends this person from overseas has arrived in New Zealand and was hoping to start some sort of support network or foundation for HIV AIDS sufferers. Keith's friend told him that Bruce was speaking in Mount Eden, so, curious, he decided to go check it out. A talented graphic designer, he thought of nothing else that he might be able to lend his skills to the cause. Although they had grown up just a 10-minute drive from one another, this was to be Bruce and Keith's first meeting. We went to the meeting, it was all set up, it was during the week at Bruce's flat. Afternoon, welcome, thank you for coming along. Sure. All kinds of stuff you might want to do on public day, like someone I did today. Those of you who haven't heard me on your radio or seen me in your headphones, I'm Bruce Burnett, here at the coordinator of the National um, AIDS Support Network. 
The meeting was an intimate one, with only about ten people crammed into Bruce's living room. Well, well, he had short, mid to dark brown, curly hair that was cut close. He was a lovely looking man and warm. Yeah, he just exuded all positive stuff, all good things. Bruce, who has been described as charismatic by seemingly everyone who met him, was confident, knowledgeable, and handsome to boot. He was also an impassioned speaker who inspired others, including Keith. And as you listen to the audio of Bruce speaking, it's not hard to understand why. We really want to get the message across very clearly that AIDS by no means means the sexual revolution, the gay liberation movement is over. The party is not over after we heard that statement, you know, the party's over. Time for us all to repent and to moderate our sexuality. Our perspective is that the party's going to continue, we're going to make it safer, we're going to make it healthier. But liberation continues. Listening to Bruce, Keith realised there was a way he could help. And he needed to tell everybody he could, every gay man that he came across, to be careful and use condoms. After Bruce had finished speaking, he asked if anyone had any questions, and Keith, seeing his opportunity, put his hand up. And he liked to use these little graphics of bears, of cuddly teddy bears as his base graphic because it's non-threatening and all of that. So, yeah, so I offered my services to him in that regard that I could help him with that. Bruce accepted Keith's offer and soon after this, the meeting broke up for the night. The group assembled started to discuss their weekend plans. But he said, oh yeah, see you at the staircase or Friday night, whichever we'd decided upon. Bruce said, oh, you won't see me because nobody's invited me. Oh, and it was said in that boo-hoo sort of fashion. But we must have picked up that we had a connection well before that because he, it was very pointed at me. And so I said, I'll meet you there at 10 o'clock. At 10pm on a Friday sometime in 1984, Keith Robinson arrived at the Gay Club staircase on Auckland's Fort Street. After he had ascended the steep stairs that gave the club its name, he looked out across the dance floor, scanning every face. It was smoky, dark and loud, and packed with people. Keith quickly found his friends and walked over to them. And there was Bruce, smiling at Keith, as if he'd been waiting for him. I think we were at staircase for about 15 minutes and then hightailed it back to Bruce's house. <laughs> it was quick. It was very quick. And we had to have the talks and all of that first and, and set the rules. Keith and Bruce went home together that night and became lovers. Despite the magnitude of Bruce's work and the commitment it took, they soon became inseparable. By this stage, Bruce had moved out of Robin's and was living at a friend's house. But it was in Mount Head and it was a lovely, warm, very modern place. 
it had a lovely garden on because it was not a through street. It was really calm. And Bruce loved that about it. He could open up the windows in his bedroom and just sit there and meditate and let all the air in and the summer in and just be. People didn't make noise. <laughs> you know, there was no noise in the street. Keith remembers that Bruce sometimes used to throw I coins to help him make decisions. Based on the Chinese classical text, the I Ching, the coins are considered to be a way to interpret and apply the text's teachings onto certain situations in the thrower's life. I Ching, I just remember those I Ching coins, clang, clang, clang. <laughs> and it was every morning, he would meditate every morning. Every morning, he'd go for a run and then he'd meditate. As well as being health conscious, Bruce was also caring and considerate. But he would do such sweet things, like if he had gone running and I was still having a shower at his place, I'd come out of the shower and he'd be a little rose on the thing, which he'd pinched, I might say. Um, <laughs> but he just did sweet things like that. He was funny and had a zest for life that meant he saw the humour in everything. He was actually quite vivacious in as, in as much as he had a good sense of humour. He laughed easily. And he was open, a big laugh. It, he laughed easily. It, it, you know, even... The truth of the of his situation, he didn't find the situation so much funny as the how the hell did we get here? During the recession that hit New Zealand in the 1980s, the Muldoon-led government came up with various job creation schemes as a response to rising unemployment levels. One of these schemes was the Project Employment Programme, colloquially known as a PEP scheme. Someone on a PEP scheme would be employed in a fully tax-funded job by a government department, local authority, non-profit, hospital or in education. Bruce was employed by the Auckland District Health Board on one of these schemes for his work on AIDS. Although Bruce was now on the government's payroll, it still didn't mean that he and the AIDS support network we're getting the government assistance they were asking for. Well, he was just he was just trying to get the government to see him, which is where Kate was very good. You met Kate Leslie in the last episode. She was a close friend to Bruce and a valuable contributor to the mission. Because Kate worked in the hospital system, she just put more pressure on well, what are now the DHBs and the government to listen to what he was saying. I mean, they heard the words, but they weren't listening properly. Keith, who had already agreed to help Bruce with graphic design, soon decided that was to be the extent of his direct involvement in Bruce's campaign. Bruce had a core team around him helping on that front, but Keith could see that Bruce was under a lot of pressure, in addition to being ill, so he thought he could be more effective being Bruce's home support. He needed somebody to listen, to run things past, to 
say his stuff that he wanted to get across and wanted me to tell him if that sounded right. Or just to go and do other stuff that had nothing to do with HIV AIDS. Just as a lover does, just, just be emotional support for anything. And that's what was most important to me then. Because I knew he was doing his work, his side of things. And he had a couple of friends, but I just wanted to, to use our relationship as something really strong for him. As long as we could. Keith and Bruce met in the prime of their lives, both passionate, intelligent, and with a love for life that had taken them each to extreme places. In other circumstances, who knows how their journey together might have ended. I did like him. I did love him a lot. Perhaps they would still be living together now, in one of those wooden, light-filled heritage houses on the side of Mangafo. Keith still designing, Bruce still cooking, meditating, and surely concocting some other huge contribution towards making the world a better place. I knew it was a moment in my life. I knew it was a moment. The, the day that we walked into that house in Mount Eden that night to have that meeting, I was just drawn to him straight away. He was just... I knew straight away that he was just the sort of person that I, could, I, would, I would love. But tragically, although Bruce still had hope, that potential future was never a possibility. And I returned to New Zealand late last year because of my own ill health. I have um, subsequently been diagnosed with an age-related condition. And at this stage, I am fairly sure that I am, if not coping or surviving with it, um, definitely I feel at some stage I will totally recover. But at this stage, I am at least stabilised. And as you can see, I certainly don't look unwell. Um, It's the clever life. (laughs) As well as all the work he was doing trying to raise awareness in the public, Bruce continued to apply pressure on the government and the district health boards. He continued to believe they weren't doing all they were capable of in relation to preparing for the coming epidemic. As the incidence of HIV-AIDS started to become apparent in New Zealand, they thought they'd better listen. They, meaning the district health boards and the government. Because, I mean, it just started like in drips and drips, and then it just became like something that was going to take up a lot of the hospital time and resources. But he was having to do it purely on the mega funds provided to him under the PEP scheme and with whatever support he could drum up from the gay community. The only thing that angered him was that there were so many barriers to him telling people to beware. You know, mainly because he had no money. Determined to raise more awareness of his campaign, Bruce's media coverage intensified. Already well known, he was becoming a public figure in New Zealand, the face of AIDS. 
Yes, it became just a thing that there was always a sound bite with Bruce on it, anything to do with HIV AIDS. He was always their go-to person to get a sound bite. And only too happy to do it because he wanted the words to get out there. And he didn't do it by shock or scaring people. He did it with warmth and love. That's how we got people to listen. And just telling them the truths, hard truths sometimes, but with warmth and love. But still, Bruce didn't think the coverage he was getting was enough. So, in the spring of 1984, he started to plan his one-man roadshow. He wanted to travel the country, stopping in at as many small towns as he could along the way to spread awareness and educate gay men on how to protect themselves. He was going to every little town he could think of from here to the north to the south, and he set up um, a hall or meetings, and he'd try and encourage people to come along and try and tell them how to have safe sex, condoms, and what was happening with AIDS and how they needed to look after themselves. For various reasons, small towns can sometimes be challenging. It was a measure of his bravery that Bruce travelled the entire length of New Zealand as an openly gay man living with AIDS. Bruce's plan was to engage the gay community through a series of talks. He was determined to educate, prepare and mobilise people. While there was still time... Just to make people aware of what to look out for in their own personal lives, like if you wake up and you feel like this, or if you wake up and you see this mark on your skin, or, you know, just just general awareness and what to do to make yourself as safe as possible in the gay world to, to try and avoid becoming a statistic. And, and in a very, in a way that you uh, not pointing fingers or or judging none of that just just everybody was an individual with Bruce and and you were fine you're the same everybody is worth the same but worth respect with help from Kate Leslie and the local gay community in each town Bruce lined up all the dates and venues in advance. And this is where Keith's graphic design experience came in handy. As you heard, Bruce wanted him to recreate a teddy bear graphic that he'd seen used effectively overseas. He showed these designs to Keith and asked if he could do something similar. He wanted to put them in cardboard tubes so he could take them on his roadshow. And so I would copy them and put them in different poses and whatever he required to get his point across, whether it was them hugging and how important that was, or, you know, showing them with lesion. But that it was a soft graphic. It wasn't like showing people pictures, because that's too shocking. The reality of AIDS is too shocking. To be able, people can't listen when you're looking at something that graphic. Based upon the designs Bruce showed him, Keith hand-drew two bears, one red and one blue, in intimate positions. In one picture, they stand side by side, one bear with his arm around the other. Affection, not rejection, 
our best protection is wrapped around the image. In the second pamphlet, a bear helps another bear bathe. They both have smiles on their faces as they look towards the viewer. And in the top right-hand corner are two hearts, one black, one white. Bruce wanted to use these cute and non-threatening images to accompany the more serious messages he was spreading, and he loved the drawings that Keith had done. But the most important aspect to these designs to Bruce wasn't whether the drawings were perfect. The most important thing was speed. I just knew that I had to help him be ready because it was the most important thing he was going to do. So that's why I just got that aspect together as quickly as possible because he had a... Well, we we both knew he had a time limit, so he needed to get started on his journey. On the 3rd of August, 1984, Bruce's AIDS Awareness Roadshow began. The roadshow was to last a month, and Bruce decided to cover Dunedin, Christchurch, Wellington, Palmerston North, Rotorua, Hamilton, and Auckland, visiting other locations along the way. At this stage, Bruce's illness had progressed. He was really sick when he did that. He was very, very ill, and it was cold, and, you know, that's amazing that he was able to do all that in the condition he was then. Bruce had set aside a date for Hamilton, a city in the Waikato region of Aotearoa. However, when he arrived, he didn't get the turnout he had been hoping for. Nobody. Nobody came. I mean, he said, this is what I'm up against. But people don't want to know. Gay men, they don't want to know. They know that it exists, but they're frightened, which was great. But he was shocked by that, 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 that just nobody turned up. But Bruce, with his typical determination, didn't let this setback slow him down. Although he was now noticeably unwell, he continued, on his own, to travel to all the towns on his list. For all its difficulties, Bruce's roadshow would leave a lasting imprint on the people of Aotearoa. It was his presence on stage, night after night and town after town, that personalised the danger these communities faced in a way that nothing else could have. Through his openness and honesty, Bruce educated the assembled crowds. The threat of AIDS was real. He was living proof of it. And without action, they were in danger. But he also showed them that they could protect themselves through simple preventative measures. He inspired them to take control of their own health and their own lives. Some of those who heard him speak would later describe seeing him as an almost spiritual experience. The last stop on Bruce's roadshow was a presentation at Alfie's nightclub in Auckland on the 2nd of September 1984, the same lecture that you're hearing in this episode. People with HIV and AIDS were beginning to return home, as Bruce himself had done. Those who were already unwell, especially if their illness was visible, faced ignorance, ostracism, and fear from their own families and communities. At this time, there still wasn't an ability to test for HIV. This, combined with the fact that people living with HIV can be asymptomatic for long periods of time, 
meant some Kiwis were also returning home to New Zealand completely unaware that they had acquired HIV. Without education, these people wouldn't realise they were at risk of unintentionally spreading the virus. Bruce could see this recipe for disaster on the horizon, and he would use his lectures and TV appearances to counter the scenario by directly addressing the common myths of who was at risk. And I could find someone with AIDS that would match your lifestyle. I can guarantee that. I dearly want to just get across to you that none of you uh, should feel, you know, particularly safe because you're not highly promiscuous, whatever that means. Um, a black lesbian woman who works for the health department in San Francisco defined promiscuity as anyone who's getting more than you. <laughs> Unfortunately still perpetuated today, a popular misconception is that HIV and AIDS only affect people who are somehow immoral. But of course the virus doesn't prescribe to any system of morality, and it certainly has no concept of who may be promiscuous. As far as just talking about what people get AIDS... There's been a really unfortunate stereotype that it's drug-using, sex-crazed, low-life, fast-lane sort of gay that gets AIDS. Um, and I'm here to defend myself. <laughs> I'm not like that at all. I'm certainly no, um, what should we say? <laughs> no virgin or whatever. Um, keep that light under control. But... Of, of the people in, in San Francisco that I have met and that I have counselled with AIDS, very few of them fit that stereotype. Very few indeed. With his characteristic blend of humour, facts, and willingness to put himself on the line, Bruce used his own circumstances to humanise HIV and AIDS to the people of New Zealand. He believed that the lack of clear communication and education around gay sexual practices were huge barriers to countering the growing health crisis. We've got X-rated, so those who aren't old enough to listen, that's going to leave the room. Although he admitted frequently that even he found it awkward and uncomfortable, he implored the gay community to start talking. Certainly, um, candidly discussing sexual practices is something that I think needs to start happening in the gay community. Um, I know it's very embarrassing at times and discomforting and not used to it. And certainly, get no help. Now, as well as perhaps being embarrassing, homosexual acts were outlawed. Under New Zealand's censorship laws of the time, any media or literature showing acts of homosexuality, even if it was trying to teach safe sex practices, was against the law. So there are excellent books in the States about this. Um, a really excellent book called Anal, Anal Sex and Hygiene. The customs, you know, will take it off you to try and bring it to your customs because it's it obviously encourages a legal act of sodomy. It also meant that Bruce, by talking so openly about homosexual practices, was not just at risk of offending people, he was breaking the law. But he knew that he couldn't let a stupid invasive law or people's individual moralistic opinion stop him from educating the people of Aotearoa and saving lives. And we'd like you all to consider them. Many of you, it might require fairly minimal change in your lifestyle. For others, it might be major changes. And it's hard. I've had to make those changes. I can, I can tell you personally how hard it is. Um, 
When I first heard those risk reduction measures, I thought they've got to be joking. <laughs> Me as a condom? <laughs> Me trying to talk to someone about, about sexual transmission disease and AIDS, having sex with them? What an ultimate turn-off. <laughs> These days, the use of condoms is so common in our society, it's hard for us to imagine a time when they weren't even on the radar for gay men. Cis men can't get pregnant, and that's what condoms were for, right? But the widespread understanding and use of condoms among gay communities today is in large part thanks to people like Bruce and Tony Hughes, the scientist you met in the first episode, who worked hard to normalise the use of them. Bruce saw any personal risk he faced to his own reputation, to his health, or his own freedom, as a fair trade-off to potentially saving lives. But I've learned to do it. I have to do it. I don't have any choice. And I hope that none of you will be in that position where you don't have any choice about it. And I hope that, having put myself out like this and doing the program, that none of you will ever have to suffer what I've gone through in the last two years. It hasn't been very pleasant most of the time. It's getting better, it's getting a lot easier. I'm getting a lot more support and a lot of help from people, and it's, that's really good. But my, my main motivation is just to hopefully prevent any of you having to go through this. Bruce, as you've already heard, was heavily inspired by the Shanti Programme's model of peer support which centred on the core principles of mutual respect, empowerment of the client, genuineness, acceptance of differences, empathy, and an intention to be of service. There's going to be a time when we're going to need probably more intimacy and perhaps even more sex than we've been getting, but we need to get it in a way that is, is safe and, and that exposes us to no risk. Bruce would offer practical support to the Kiwis who were personally affected by AIDS, he would sit with them, find out what they needed or wanted, and enlist the help of the gay community as a way of making sure that their final days were as easy as possible. But he would also connect with them in a way that transcended all of the practical stuff, through intimacy. This was at a time when unnecessary, full-barrier PPE was still being used by medical staff while treating people. People would throw away cutlery and utensils if someone suspected to be living with AIDS had used them. I remember one man in Auckland who was really, really sick. And he had Carposi's sarcoma. And he had all these fucking lesions all over him. He'd once been the most beautiful man, but... You know, he was totally transformed. But Bruce took me a couple of times on his visits to see this person. And I was shocked. I'm a pretty unshockable person, but I was quite shocked. Carposi's sarcoma is just like the worst thing ever. It's so obvious and so apparent in ways that other aspects of HIV are not just lesions and dark purple things all over you. It's just, you know, that's the unkindest cut of all for a gay man. But Bruce was just compassionate self. Mainly it was that, and just talking. 
and holding because people don't touch you especially if you had carposis it's very difficult for people to see past that because it's so obvious and you know if we don't get touched we just die you just need to be held it was mostly just being there I mean he couldn't talk very well towards the end that this individual but you know Bruce always would hold him and he always knew he was being held and that was important to know that somebody loved you as I said earlier people with AIDS really pose probably very little risk to you and that you are more at risk to them and I really ask you not to give that stigma to people with AIDS or to even with people with AIDS-related conditions that you trust, try and relate to them as a person rather than as a disease. Throughout Bruce's campaign, one message stood out the most strongly, hope. In all of his communications with the public, Bruce was clear that this was not the apocalypse, nor the end of the gay liberation era. I sort of offered those with facts as some hope. It's important for us to keep hope in this presentation. This was a preventable medical situation, and although public health involvement would surely play a role, there were immediate and effective things that individuals everywhere could do to protect themselves. This message of hope that Bruce was sharing was made even more admirable by the fact that Bruce must have realised, for him, time was running out. The symptoms are all listed on the pamphlet, they're very non-specific. Um, you can never really tell whether you've got bronchitis or stomach flu or AIDS. Um, in fact, my own experience, what I have got most of the time, I feel it's like I've got a reoccurring uh, flu or head cold that just never goes away. As far as his own demise, Bruce was very in touch with his own body. And he could feel the changes. And I think he knew exactly how close he was coming to his death. I mean, he had, he had seen it himself in San Francisco. He had seen it himself in New Zealand. And, and he knew, but he, he never voiced that to me. He, never voiced that he thought he was dying because he knew that that just saying it out loud would hurt me. He He was not deluded at all. I'm sure he was well aware of of his last days. When Bruce returned home after his roadshow, he had undergone a shocking transformation. And well before he left, the journey, hard work and progression of the virus had taken their toll. Bruce and Keith's relationship, once a source of comfort and companionship for them both, began to show cracks. Oh God. 
This is the very hardest part. So, these I Ching came out again. Keith didn't hold much stock in Bruce's use of the I Ching. He said to me one day, I've thrown the I Ching and it, sh- it has questions about you and I. I said, oh, yes. Because I didn't, I'm not an I Ching person, I'm just not that. And I said, and what do you mean? He said, well, I need to know what you want. Like, what you want from me. Which I thought, which made me quite annoyed, actually. Because I thought, I showed everything I am. And that hurt. Because all he had to do was ask me things. But he would ask these I Ching coins for the story and the answers. And sort of, it started going downhill from there. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for people with a terminal illness to push their loved ones away. He would kind of pick little fights and he'd never yell. But he would just find imperfection in himself, in me, about why we shouldn't continue. And so, and it happened quite fast, the, the finish of our relationship, which was sad because it just started with such hope. But he was getting more unwell. Sadly, the fights increased until finally, one day, Bruce and Keith made the difficult decision to break up. Yeah, it was, it was hard. It was very hard because I did love him. And I continue to love him. I think about him all the time. Bruce and Keith stayed in touch after their breakup, but they stopped spending time together. Bruce, as unwell as he was, was still out there, holding TV interviews and talking on the radio. As far as his illness went, Bruce would tell me only what I needed to know. He would tell me how we were feeling daily when we were in our relationship. It was later on when we were, when we, when he'd pushed me away and I'd come to terms with that's how it was going to be and he was no longer my lover and I was just his friend. But he would only tell me things when he thought that I might find out from somebody else. So he was always trying to protect me from the horrible realities. Unfortunately for Bruce, he couldn't protect himself from the horrible realities that were happening to his body. He had arrived home with what he called a mild case of AIDS. On his tour around Aotearoa, he had often talked about making a full recovery and had tried to spread a message of hope amongst others who were affected as he had been. As you heard in episode one, at some stage Bruce consulted with Dr. Rod Ellis Pegler 
who confirmed what he must have suspected. He said, I'm, I'm crook. And, the, and he said, oh, can I come and see you as a doctor? And we agreed that he was untreatable. Of course, Bruce being who he was, meant that the media picked up on the latest development and reported it in the daily news. I can remember being in my car and listening to the radio and hearing that Bruce had been admitted to hospital and had gone blind. And I just stopped my car and turned around and went to Auckland Hospital and said, what's going on? He said, no, no, there's nothing to worry about. I said, you can't fucking see. I said, that's something to be concerned about. And he said, I think it's just a passing thing. And I mean, I knew that he knew that the jig was finally up. But he was trying to just not make me freak out, I think. You know, he was just... He was so kind, he didn't even want me to be affected by that, even though we were no longer lovers. This would be the final time that Keith saw Bruce. And because he knew I was frightened for him. It just... I mean, he he looked fine. I mean, you know, he didn't look like the old Bruce, but he looked fine. He didn't look like he was dying. But I could feel that this was coming to an end and he wouldn't say it to me but I remember holding him a lot before I left the room In his final weeks Bruce insisted on staying at the home of a support worker who was caring for other people also affected by AIDS Robin visited him every day. I think he was a bit angry that he, you know, that it happened to him, but we didn't really talk a lot about it. When Bruce was well enough to talk, Robin and him probably chatted about other things. Their parents, their shared childhood experiences, those weekends in Lee and the family holidays on the farm and bulls. As the days passed, and as Bruce got sicker, these conversations must have ceased. But in these final moments, Bruce continued to fight for the people of Aotearoa. Well, that was Bruce, eh? He he wasn't going to give in. He fought right till the end. In fact, the day before he died, you could tell that he was not going to last, but he was hanging on and hanging on because this guy was coming to take over the foundation. I remember he wanted to sign something. I can't remember what it was. But when he signed it, he couldn't, his signature was undecipherable. It was awful, really awful. The signature was to be the last important contribution Bruce made to the AIDS support network during his life. The very next day, on the 1st of June 1985, Robin received a call when she was at work. She rushed over to the hospice, but was too late. Her talented, compassionate and funny baby brother, with a thick curly hair and easy smile, had died.
Bruce's funeral was held at the Monaco Memorial Garden Cemetery and Crematorium on an appropriately grey and overcast day, as if nature too knew we had lost a bright light. More than 150 friends joined his family for the funeral service. With the many television crews and flashing photographers, Robin found the service overwhelming. The family had originally wished for a small, private ceremony, but after discussions with the aid support network, they realised that that's not what Bruce would have wanted. Bruce would have wanted as much publicity as possible. He would have wanted his family and his community to join together, and he would have wanted the people of Aotearoa, who he had given everything to, to know about and be affected by his passing. Not because he thought he was important, but because he would have known that as awareness of his death spread, so too would awareness of his cause. And his cause was the most important thing to him, even at the very end. remember for all his for his courage for his dedication all the hard work he put on his ability to see the job through he just persevered I think he should have got a medal (laughs) and you think what could have happened if he hadn't a lot of lives would have been lost I think he did a wonderful thing he was just so driven he knew he had a limited life expectancy, although he never talked about at any length at all, but he knew it. We discussed that early in our relationship, but then we didn't need to talk about it anymore because, you know, you can't dwell. And he just wasn't a person to dwell on that. He just got on with the business while he had the time. Beautiful man. You would have loved him to bits. And I think that's about all I've got to say at this stage. And I'd just really like to open it up to questions. Um, please feel free to ask any question, um, even personal questions about myself. I will try and answer most of them as truthfully as possible, but if it's a bit too personal, I might, I might pass. Thanks for listening to Our Forgotten Epidemic, a show about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. Burnett Foundation Aotearoa is proud to be able to tell part of this important story from the perspectives of some truly remarkable people. And we want to acknowledge there's so much more than we can tell in this short series. Our Forgotten Epidemic was produced by Wavelength Creative in collaboration with Burnett Foundation Aotearoa. Written and researched by Alyssa Partington, Matt Bain, and myself, Jason Myers. All music composed by Alex Cox. Many of the voices you've heard in this episode are from a series of interviews conducted by Dr. Cheryl Weir in 2019 for the New Zealand AIDS Foundation Oral History Project. Thanks to Keith Robinson and Robin Mihaide for allowing us to interview them for this project. The What's On in Auckland radio clips you heard in this episode were from a Radio Gala Auckland broadcast, now held at the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, Te Pūranga Takatāpui o Aotearoa, Legends. 
The audio you heard of Bruce Burnett in this episode is from the August 1984 AIDS Roadshow meeting at Alfie's in Auckland, recorded by Graham Underhill, which is held at the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, Te Puranga Takatapui or Aotearoa, Lagans. Special thanks to our test listeners, including staff living with HIV at Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, Gareth Watkins, the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, and PrideNZ.co.nz. Special thanks also goes to Peter Davis for his excellent book, Intimate Details and Vital Statistics, AIDS, Sexuality and the Social Order in New Zealand. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Dr. Jason Myers. Join me in the next episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic.